Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Brexit Unspun. This is where we debunk the political spin around Brexit. I'm Shona Jenkins. Today I'm joined by Sarah Gordon, our business editor, and Patrick Jenkins, financial editor, and we're taking a look at trade and the single market. What impact will separation from the EU have on the UK's financial services and other key sectors? How will it affect tariffs and supply chains? The Brexiteers have always claimed that because the UK imports more from the bloc than it exports, EU countries will do their best to ensure that trade continues without disruption. Sarah, does this argument hold water? I think it's probably true to say that at some point in the future, there will be a perfectly reasonable trade deal between the UK and the EU. The question is, frankly, when and what happens before. At the moment, political imperatives are very much trumping commercial imperatives. It is highly unlikely, even if you are a German company or a car parts supplier, for example, and you want to go on trading freely with the UK, that doesn't mean that the German government or the people tasked with negotiating Britain's future relationship with the EU will agree with you. I mean, at the moment, the overwhelming will in the EU is to make it clear that leaving the EU has a cost and that that cost is a painful one. And that makes it very difficult to envisage an equally preferential trade arrangement with the bloc, at least, I would say, in the next five, even to 10 years. So what is the greatest risk to the smooth operation of cross-border trade and which sectors are most likely to be affected? Well, one of the things that is talked about, which is, I think, not terribly well understood, is this idea that if we don't get a deal by the end of March 2019, that we will default to WTO rules and these will somehow provide an overarching and comprehensive regime for our future trading arrangements. And that isn't true for one good reason, which is that WTO rules cover tariffs and they don't cover non-tariff barriers. And if you are an exporter or an importer, non-tariff barriers, so things like, for example, the forms you have to fill out at customs points, those non-tariff barriers can often be as important, as significant as the tariffs that you pay. So if there is no deal, we will move into an era of much higher tariff and non-tariff barriers, which would affect everybody who imports and exports to the UK. And any arrangement under which there are higher tariffs are likely to affect, obviously, our largest industries. So financial services, the car industry, the pharmaceutical industry, But there's also another area which it's important to highlight, which is how much regulation of particular industries is carried out under the aegis of the EU. So that's true of pharmaceuticals and medicine. But it is also true, for example, of airlines. So if you're EasyJet, you may find that it's better for you to operate more flights out of the EU itself post-Brexit than having Heathrow as your main hub. So I think there are different areas, regulatory and non-tariff that are as important as whether the actual costs 
the taxes levied on your exports and imports go up. Patrick, Britain's services sector generates an outsized share of GDP, with the jewel in the crown being London, which by some measures is the world's largest financial centre. How will Brexit hit the city? Well, the true answer is nobody knows, because as Sarah was saying, it all depends on when a deal is made and what kind of deal that is. I think the city's frustration is that they feel that government isn't listening to their point of view. They fear that the government doesn't grasp how important the UK's financial services industry is in terms of generation of taxes. You know, 60 to 70 billion a year comes from this industry. It provides huge numbers of jobs around the country. In the city alone, there's 400,000 people working in and around the financial services sector. So it is, there's a lot at stake. The benign outcome would be that something that goes some way to replicate what we have at the moment, which is a single market operating under so-called passporting arrangements by which companies with a base in one EU country, such as London, can sell their services across border. Now, if we are outside that system, the hope is that some kind of replica could be set up. But all the noises that you hear around so-called hard Brexit from the UK government, but also all the noises you hear, or a lot of the noises you hear from the rest of the EU, would suggest that a particularly close tie is not looking likely. And that would mean essentially that potentially large portions of the operations that are based in the city at the moment would need to be relocated to EU financial centres such as Frankfurt or Dublin or Paris. So how are banks preparing, particularly for the loss of passporting rights? Well, at the moment, there's very little that has been done in concrete terms other than preparatory work. So a lot of the US banks, for example, are the ones that will be most affected by this because they've used London historically as a launch pad into the rest of the EU. They have inherited, alongside their expansion internationally, a lot of operations in parts of continental Europe, which basically have been redundant. They might have subsidiaries or branches in various different locations. And what they're doing now is finding out exactly what they have got, in which locations. And they've set about talking to regulators in those jurisdictions about reviving those operations so that if they need to, they can use them as practical outposts. So far, they haven't really moved any jobs and certainly no operations to those locations. I think we will see a trickle of roles moving as they up those preparations. But so far, realistically, banks are talking about shifting dozens or potentially hundreds of jobs in a first phase, which might come in the next six to 12 months. Longer term, you know, the most dramatic predictions are that, for example, Oliver Wyman has predicted up to 75,000 jobs of the city's 400,000 could move to other centres in the EU. Patrick, what could future arrangements look like in financial services? Well, if we accept the premise that passporting is gone, then I think most experts would expect an alternative arrangement that's anything other than, you know, the very bare minimum, i.e. no deal, to rely on something called in the jargon regulatory equivalence. This is basically ensuring that UK regulations would continue to move in parallel to EU regulations. So obviously, once Brexit happens, we start from a position of almost identical rules in the UK and EU. But by tying ourselves to a promise of regulatory equivalence and thereby getting 
preferential access to EU markets, we would need to promise to keep rules roughly the same. That would go down very well with most financial institutions. One or two caveats to that are we've seen some lobbying already by insurance companies to get out of the EU law that they hate, which is so-called Solvency 2, which they see as crimping their business, particularly around investments in infrastructure and so on. And bankers wouldn't admit it at the moment, but at some point we're going to hear noises trying to get out of EU rules around pay, which restrict the size of bonuses that they can get. So watch out for that one as well. Has the government given any indication as to whether or not they'd consider that? None at all. But in implying there's a hard Brexit, there's there's no way that we stay in the single market. That is making clear that passporting is gone. By implication, the next level of hope, I suppose, for the city is around regulatory equivalence, which is why, and she hasn't ruled that out, so um, all hopes are pinned on that. Sarah, it's been suggested that Britain can benefit in the longer term by having a free hand to negotiate trade agreements with countries like China, Canada and the US. What's your view on this? Um, well, I think they will be able to negotiate free. We will be able to negotiate free trade agreements with other countries, and it is certainly true to say that the wheels of the EU grind extremely slowly. So. It's not noted for its ability to close trade deals during the decades of its existence. However, I think there are two caveats to that. One is that if we would prefer to trade with anyone, it is with our nearest neighbours. It's with your nearest neighbours that you are the most competitive for obvious reasons. You're not transporting goods or importing goods over great distances. And obviously that means the EU, having a free trade agreement with the EU on the whole would be much more beneficial than with even countries as large and important as China and the US. The second point is that Britain is not terribly high up the priority list for those countries, China and the US, in terms of getting such an agreement in place. And indeed, you'll remember that President Obama said rather off-puttingly that we would go to the back of the queue in negotiating a trade deal with the US. I think under the current US administration, it's difficult to know whether it will be more of a priority or less of a priority. But what is definitely true is that it's not going to happen overnight. Sarah, how are companies outside the financial sector preparing for Brexit? Well, I think it varies enormously across the size of company in the sector. I mean, if you're a large FTSE 100 company at the moment, you're employing a lot of lawyers and other advisors to help you come up with not just different scenarios for potential Brexit outcomes, but also to help you design an advocacy and lobbying strategy with government, not just government in the UK, but obviously in Brussels, to try and get your priorities across. Now, if you're a smaller company, you don't have the resources required to map out different scenarios or indeed to engage in any lobbying activity. And that is a real worry. One of the big issues is that because the outcomes are still so uncertain, and indeed on issues on which the government could deliver some certainty, it has refused to. So, for example, on the nature of a high-skilled visa regime after Brexit or on the future rights of EU citizens in the UK, because there is so little clarity, it makes it very difficult to plan. I mean, business, as I think I've said to you before, business can plan for anything as long as it knows what it's planning for, which is why the idea that no deal is better than a bad deal is rejected by every single business that I've spoken to since June last year. 
And I mean, a number of advisory bodies are suggesting that at the very least, you should sit down and take a snapshot of your supply chain and your contractual arrangements so that you know where your potential exposure is, at least. Is it a particular supplier whose um, goods may get more expensive if higher tariffs apply? How many of your contracts are dependent on EU law? Obviously, we have the Great Repeal Bill, which will, on the day of Brexit, automatically make all EU law currently enforced in the UK, UK law. But then certain elements of that will be unpicked over time. So do you need to bulletproof your contractual arrangements against that? And the worry is that a lot of companies are not doing any planning at all. And if you are not doing any planning and you feel the future is uncertain, you react in two ways if you're a company. You invest less and you hire less. And neither of those are really coming through in the macroeconomic numbers so far, but it is definitely a risk going forward. Patrick, are there any silver linings for financial services and the City of London? Well, there may be, yes. I mean, I think the one segment of the city that is feeling quite loved at the moment by government and fairly bullish about the future is the financial technology or fintech sector. They've been growing pretty rapidly in recent years and government policies around tax and in other areas have encouraged that growth. And I think it's a sector that the government is understandably proud of. That said, it's pretty small, and even if it grows rapidly, it's going to remain very insignificant relative to the scale of the jobs and the revenues that the big banks and other big financial services companies like insurers and asset managers bring in. Whether they would get a positive boost from Brexit is another question, and I think you know there's certainly fintech entrepreneurs out there who believe that Berlin, for example, will in future make a more attractive financial hub than London. I suppose the other redefinitions of the city that people have talked about if there were to be a dramatic shift of existing business away from London either to the EU financial centres or actually to New York as well which is another prediction how could that be replaced well people talk about thinking about the city more as a kind of offshore centre almost like a Singapore of Europe that's unappetising for many people but it could bring business here for the likes of Chinese companies Middle Eastern companies Russian companies and individuals even more than currently takes place I think those that would argue against that kind of future for the city would question whether it would be in line with Theresa May's pronouncements addressing some of the anti-elite sentiment in the country to then put forward a plan for the city that encouraged more tax breaks for the super rich and for big corporates promoting globalisation through London. So whether that's realistic or desirable is a big question. Thanks, Sarah and Patrick, and thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for another unvarnished look at what Brexit will mean for Britain's trade, economy, public institutions and private sector. We hope you'll join us then and we'd be delighted in the meantime if you wanted to review or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you download. You can also email us at brexitunspun, that's all one word, at ft.com if you have a question or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes. 